Before Julius Caesar was the name in Rome, he needed help getting there. And who better to help than one of the richest men in the history of the Roman Republic? A man named Marcus Licinius Crassus. Caesar and Crassus, alongside another man named Pompey, would be three of the last men in charge of Rome before its change from republic to empire. Caesar and Pompey would be assassinated, but Crassus, if the stories are to be believed, may have had the worst end of all. reading his end just kept on thinking of like so i've had the same thing happen i just drank a lot of gold schlager one time <laughs> and it's the same experience except it came back out yeah it could come back out all right you ready to talk about this bastard <laughs> i mean yeah this guy kind of sucked confirmed owner of people kind, yeah. of, a, kind of a bastard it's so yeah. funny because he's like ah this guy owned like hundreds of slaves in different countries oh, and yeah. he just took advantage of really poor people all the time he was but he was really nice <laughs> very much a slumlord though <laughs> oh yeah very much that's what happens i guess when you're really rich and you want to make more money is you take advantage of the people that don't have a lot of it speaking of really rich and taking advantage of people who don't make a lot of money welcome back to the gems of history podcast folks evan's running the show today <laughs> let's go i am your co-host i was waiting so long like where can i interject like say slumlord say slumlord <laughs> speaking of slumlord yeah i'm your co-host evan roosh and with me as always the main man himself jacob shop can't drink without almost dying uh, almost oh. just choked on my drink, but hey, we're here. That would have just been another Wasn't solo cold, episode <laughs> from your boy. You'd have to run back and forth on this one. Right, Hello, yeah. I am here. <laughs> <laughs> While you're just choking, it's like, it's fine, it's ice, Jacob. It will melt. <laughs> <laughs> How are you today, Evan? Doing pretty great. Uh, at war with the HOA. Really? Again, so they won't mow our lawn in the front. Oh, you've told me about this, I think. Because they keep on claiming there's dog waste in the yard. But we always clean it up the more, like Wednesday morning before it comes. And I've spent way too much time double checking right. that there's not dog waste in the front yard. And for probably, I don't think they've mowed it a single time. Like, we're, well, it just turned to August, but like all of July, they didn't mow it. So it is just so high <laughs> and so gross. And they just won't do it. And <laughs> they keep on claiming that they keep, like, like they leave slips. Saying we didn't mow your lawn because of dog waste. But then I check, and there's nothing there. There is no dog waste. You know what you should do? <laughs> Burn down their neighbor's house, and before he catches their house on fire, offer to buy their house, and then pay them, like, pennies on the dollar for it, and then mm. make them buy it back for you for an exorbitant amount, and then they'll have more respect for you. That does sound like a good plan. I don't think it helps with the dog waste issue, but we'll come back to it that one. It might not. We'll come back to that one. <laughs> yeah. Crassus gave us a lot of lessons, just not so not much with that. About dog poop, though. <laughs> Do you think that he had an HOA running his things? Mm. And you think they were also just people with way too much time on their hands? Oh, yeah. Definitely. <laughs> I mean, he sold, he pretty much sold every house to the most rich people. It, he was mm -hmm. like selling houses to the biggest celebrities in hollywood essentially yeah except they had political power too <laughs> Can you imagine that <laughs> it's not a bad thing to be the landlord of 
all the decision makers. Oh, yeah. It helps a lot. Gets you where you need to go. That's for sure. (laughs) But yeah, we're talking about Marcus Licinius Crassus today. And I don't know if a lot of people have ever heard that name, but he's uh, quite the important person. He literally set up Julius Caesar to be Julius Caesar. And then eventually Julius Caesar saw his downfall as an opportunity. And so he took his advantage of that. But yeah, before Caesar was really anybody, he got a lot of money from Crassus to become a consul and eventually have any power. Right. Like when you think about Rome, you typically do think of the triumvirate, which we'll talk about. And it's always Julius Caesar Pompey, and it's like who's the third guy? Who's that other one, like who's like the other? There's like one more beetle that I just <laughs> yeah. can't remember. Who is the third guy in the space shuttle? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but it's yeah, he's uh, he was one of the most influential people of his time, one of the most richest people of his time, if not the richest, and someone you definitely don't think about when you think about Rome in general, right? Like you immediately think Caesar, Augustus, the Gladiator movies, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. But it is interesting, too, that he was the richest man probably in the Roman Republic's history, and he wasn't a king. He wasn't a dictator. He wasn't an emperor. He was just a senator for the most of most of his lifetime, in power at least. Yeah, senator and a great businessman. Yeah. A bastard. Yeah, a great definitely a bastard. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, we, we've got a lot to get into today surrounding his life. And this was a, another Patreon-selected topic. This was our July-selected topic. It was chosen by Jerry once again. It was a tie on the Patreon poll, so we did it in the most civilized way to choose between the two and had a third party flip a coin. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> so it was chosen that we were going to do Marcus Licinius Crassus. I, for the bulk of the research for this episode, I used a book by a man named Peter Stothard, I believe that's how you say it. He does a series called Ancient Lives, and he did a book on Crassus called The First Tycoon, and it's got some melted gold on the cover, which is kind of cool. Not real gold. That'd be kind of nice. I'll say most expensive book you've bought for the show. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it's a... Uh, It's not a very long read. It's very detail heavy. And if you don't have a lot of background information on some of the stuff he talks about, it's not very clear what he's going at. So you have to do kind of some uh, little side research here and there if you want to really get the full story. But very well researched and very thorough on the life of Marcus Licinius Crassus. Which is very hard to do. You have to have you have to give big ups to people who dedicate their lives to cover historical figures like this. Because have we've run into many a time on this show where we cover people probably even before like 1400 AD, where it's like, well, we actually don't know a ton. Right, exactly. We don't know exactly what happened. Yeah, there's weird gaps in history because we get really good mm-hmm. historians like Plutarch and Herodotus and stuff like that back in the, like way back in the day. And then there's gaps like from 900 to like 1400 where there's just everyone dies and you don't have any records from those times. Right. People are too busy just surviving. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No one's t- taking detailed notes. It was very funny when we did. Well, when I, my solo episode, when I had to do uh, the worst years of history, I think like three of them were in that time period, yep. like 900 to 1400. Everyone like, dies. That's just a terrible time. Well, you had alive. the Little Ice Age, which was like 500 years of everything not growing right. So it's hard to survive when there's no food. It's just such malnourishment. It's probably why everyone in Europe and well, across the world was like 5'2". Yeah, no one grew. If you were 5'8", you were a monster. Exactly. <laughs> 
so one thing I wanted to get out of the way before we get into the story proper is we're going to be talking about the Roman Republic. And if you don't know, there was different time periods for Rome. There was kind of like the early king period, and then it transitioned into the Republic and then got to empire. So the difference basically is just the Republic was more of a democratic. There was a Senate. There wasn't really any supreme ruler. It was mostly two consuls at the top checking each other's power. And then once empire comes along, then it becomes a single person in charge. So that's just the basic difference between empire and republic just so you know what we're kind of talking about. At this time, Rome is ruled in a way by the people. Mm-hmm. So just getting that out of the way for a little background before we get into our main guy, which I guess we could probably get into that right now, huh? Our main squeeze. Uh, I don't know about that. No. <laughs> he could be our other Mark that replaces Mark as our podcast host. Bring him oh back God. from the dead. <laughs> we just have a statue of Marcus, let's say, as Crassus right there, where Mark used to Maybe sit. he'll bring us some good fortune monetarily so we can cancel our jobs and just do this forever. As long as it's on the up and up. Exactly. <laughs> we don't need to be slumlords or, or own people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was funny. I was the uh, one YouTube video that I watched for this, the top comment was, Hmm, a guy taking advantage of a senatorial position to make a lot of money. I wonder where we got it from. <laughs> History repeats itself. Yeah. It was a Roman Republic and we're a republic, so. In a way. <laughs> In a, yeah. We're a republic, wink. Wink. So it's been said that greed is the downfall of man, and for no man is that more true than Marcus Licinius Crassus. By his death in 53 BC, he was one of the most important men in Rome. He didn't go about it the same way as most other men did, though, by military campaigning to gain glory back home. Instead, he decided to make himself known through shrewd business dealings and influential patronage. But before all that, he was just a boy living in a very turbulent and very violent society. Yeah, his upbringing. He kind of had to be on guard at all times. Oh, yeah. I mean, as we'll get to, there's going to be a lot of heads just floating around Rome during this time period. Heads be rolling in Rome. <laughs> that is what the song is about. The political, yeah, right. <laughs> the political environment of Rome, and I'm, I know that we'll get into this later, but it is so interesting that I can't believe it's not like a dedicated, like truly dedicated TV show. Yeah. Because it's super, super like alliance-based. You have to have so much backing. People turn on you all the time. Like this isn't a spoiler for this episode, but like Julius Caesar gets stabbed to death by the entire yeah, Senate. Exactly. Because like that's the political environment that's happening, like in this time period in Rome. Because Crassus comes up right towards the like, the last hundred years or so, a little less than the last hundred years of the Republic of Rome. So it's a very turbulent time period where everyone's trying to change policy in huge ways that mm-hmm. aren't really working. And then when one guy makes the wrong decision politically, he gets assassinated real fast. Yeah. <laughs> so that's pretty much what he's coming up into. Marcus Licinius Crassus, though, was born in 115 BC, not in Rome, but in Spain, which was then known as Iberia. And according to Plutarch, one of the more contemporary sources on early Roman Greece, the Crassus, the Crassus family was not exceedingly wealthy, but rather they were more of a modest family of average Roman citizens when they finally moved from Spain to Rome. However, by the turn of the century, Publius Licinius Crassus, who was Marcus's father, was a consul in 97 BC, the highest elected office in the Roman Republic, and by 93 BC, he was even given the rare honor of having a Roman triumph held in his honor for his good military commanding. 
If you don't know what a, Ro- a Roman triumph, I didn't know that this was the term for it. Yeah, I didn't It's either. basically just a giant parade celebrating you when you get back from a campaign or when you do something really good. So Right, like great publicity, great PR. Like we mentioned, you have to have the backing of so many people to be a successful political figure. And these triumphs go a long way to demonstrate that. It, it's pretty... It, it doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal, just getting a giant parade for yourself, but... It really does influence a lot in mm-hmm. where you stand politically and militarily and po- it just in general as a power figure in society in Rome. Do you think these parades were kind of like the NBA championship parades? Like the Milwaukee Bucks, remember that? <laughs> when Double they won? Decker wagon. <laughs> yeah, Double Decker wagon. Like PJ Tucker's just hammered saying, Milwaukee, we, we saw got dogs. dogs. <laughs> yeah. Do you think it's like the same? Like Mar or uh, Publius. <laughs> he was just at the top of a chariot, like legionnaires. We them dogs. We have them dogs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. With, yeah. But it was said that aside from having a triumph, his father was most notable for changing policy for banning magicians and human sacrifice, along with regulating luxury dining and expensive perfumes. You know what? I like those. I've, I'm pro getting rid of human sacrifices. I, I, I want that on record. I don't know if I want him to ban magicians, though. <laughs> that just kind of seems like fun. Someone did the thumb trick, and he's like, oh, nobody. <laughs> Someone's like, is this your card? And he's like, you're a witch. <laughs> right, but now I have your head. <laughs> exactly. Not much else is known about Crassus's upbringing other than his parents' names, which were Publius and Venelea, and the fact that he was the second oldest of three brothers. And other than that, all we know is that the family all lived in a small house together, and they all ate together, so it was pretty tight-knit family overall, but they lived pretty modestly, even when his father had pretty sizable means to mm-hmm. move them out of that. So, But at the time, too, it was said that it was really hard for a family to kind of uproot even when they did get rich, because that meant getting a bunch of wagons and a bunch of stuff to transport all your wealth, which... Who knows what's going to happen along the way? So, right, people were just easily getting kidnapped. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. if you're, if let's say theoretically you have three wagons and the other people, like with 40 people, and you get like just surrounded by 80 people, you kind of have to just get kidnapped or ransom your way out of that. Exactly. That was more popular in the more middle ages, like when we uh, talked about, uh, Joanna of Naples. Thank you. No, it was Eleanor of Aquitaine. Or Thank one you. of the two. <laughs> they, uh, Eleanor of Aquitaine. Yeah, like just getting kidnapped on your way to place to place was so yeah, you, common. You'd get kidnapped, sexually assaulted, and then you're technically married. But then they, you have, if you have a powerful name and you're a woman, that's a rough spot to be if you don't have a man. Very tough spot to be. In. Yeah. So, Marcus's older brother also named Publius, died when Marcus was in his early 20s. So, Marcus married his brother's widow. Tertula, which was at the time even an uncommon practice. Yeah, it's uh, that's an odd thing to do. I can't think it would be the first thing that I would do if I had a brother and he died. But no, you have three brother, two brothers. Would you? No, let's end. Let's uh, end that one. Let's uh, let's stop that one right now. (laughs) So, to this certain situation, is that a move to? keep maybe the family wealth altogether. I really like don't in this know. Time, because I know like it's that's it it eventually becomes pretty common for people to do that again in the Middle Ages. And there's even some instances in the Bible where that's extremely common. Uh in the biblical times uh with like the Israelites and how they conducted their society. So I mean it is 
it's not common, but it's not like yeah. completely unheard of. Right, so, like, exactly. But for that, it was just strictly to keep your money, keep your land in the family. I really don't know because I don't know how Roman society operated as far as if a widow inherits things from the family, if they mm-hmm. like kind of get taken care of by the rest of the family. I don't know if that was a thing. It didn't really say anything in any of the sources I read. Just right. said they got married. <laughs> and then they had <laughs> two, two children together, also named Marcus and Publius. <laughs> So they so, they didn't really have a lot of variation in name. Their minds were just financially and numbers oriented. Yes. They were they had no time for creativity. It's not like today where you're like, do you have a list of names that you're going with for this child? Like yeah. my <laughs> my sister is having a child soon. All of us are trying to get it out of them what they're going to name it. But I don't think she's going to name it Thomas after. after yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> However, it was around this time that a civil war would break out in Rome between a man named Sulla and another named Marius. And without, so we're going to kind of cover this with very basic terms. Without going into too much detail, it was a war of social issues. Sulla had served in Marius's army for a while. He was kind of the younger one in the scenario. And he eventually became a consul alongside Marius. However, Sulla represented old money because he had backing primarily from the Senate through his name, to and they kind of saw him as an opportunity to keep Rome as it had been. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, Marius was a man of the people, and he had risen through merit rather than family name and championed the ideals of the downtrodden allies of Rome who didn't have the same privilege and didn't enjoy the same rights as the Roman citizens had. They were technically part of Rome as a con- consolidated group, but they weren't citizens of Rome. So they didn't get the same privileges. Right. They could be in the same building, but they can't sit with you. Exactly. <laughs> you have a different water fountain. Yes. There. Yeah. After having served with these allies, Marius attempted to push reforms to appease the disgruntled Roman allies. And then eventually, those two competing, ideal, those two competing ideologies came to a head. So Sulla attempted to leave on a campaign to Pontus, which is an area in modern-day Turkey, and while he was doing this, Marius attempted to undermine him back in Rome. This led to Sulla returning to Rome instead, marching on the city and pushing Marius and his supporters out. So this is the first, uh, the second time, I believe, in Rome's history that someone has marched on the city. So kind of a big deal. And then after Sulla pushed out Marius, Marius went to Africa, reorganized his troops and marched back to Rome when Sulla left to actually go on to his campaign into modern-day Turkey. And when Marius returned to Rome, he purged a vast majority of Sulla's supporters in an orgy of violence. Oh. <laughs> it's a good way of putting it. It's the best way I thought of to put it. <laughs> they were very excited. Yeah, they were for, for a little bit until the violence started. <laughs> but no, it's, it's just very interesting because Rome for thousands of years was that just centerpiece of the Mediterranean. But they fought each other quite a bit. All the time. All the time, whether it was, again, in just simple politics or flat out civil war. Yeah, literally. Like this. And it's interesting that you said that that was only the second time that someone actually marched on Rome. Like, not even Hannibal, like, technically marched on Rome. Yeah. Yeah, close. He did. But not technically like all the way there. So go listen to our Hannibal episode. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) It's just interesting the fact that this giant superpower of a republic 
their biggest enemy is just themselves. Yeah. Well, when it comes a, down to it. You would think that they would have learned from Greece, like Athens right. and Sparta. They fought each other all the time. And then it took Persia to come in and knock, finally knock one of them out. Right. Athens versus Sparta was everyone's favorite. It was like the Super Bowl. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> when are they going to fight again? Yeah. Tune in next spring. The Fourth Punic War. So basically, summing that up. Two guys were fighting. One of them left on a campaign. The other one took control of Rome. And then when the when the other guy was still on campaign, the guy in Rome killed everybody that supported the guy in campaign. Yep. So it was a, a very bloody and very... There wasn't a lot of compromise in any way towards either side. And this was important not only for the fact that it set new precedents in Rome going forward, but it also was important to our story because in those purges... Publius Licinius Crassus committed suicide with one of his sons. Not Marcus, but one of the other ones. And it was said that the last time Marcus saw his father, his head was being displayed on the prow of a ship in the Forum. And he's like 20s, like early 20s at this point. Mm. And he sees his father, who was a supporter of Sulla in some way, not very outspoken on it, but... He sees his father's head displayed in the middle of a public square. It's pretty scarring. A little bit. Pretty scarring indeed. Well, and then you know, I'm the only man left in my family. My one brother died, took his wife. Yep. Then my father and my other brother committed suicide together. Yeah. So, So at this point, Crassus knew he was in trouble. So he hid in Rome itself for 18 months with his family near the citizens' temples and the tomb where the Vestal Virgins, who broke their vows, were buried alive. Oh, God. We got to do an episode on those people because he puts little snippets of Vestal Virgin stuff in the book, just talking about their customs. It seems wild. We could absolutely do a just a top five list of wackiest things of Rome. Oh, yeah. Because the like execution styles, they were big on that. Oh, yeah. The temple or the tomb where they were buried, it was said they were lowered into a pit on a chair with just enough food to live for like a week. And then that gave the Romans a clean conscience because they said, we gave them something. After that, it was in their hands. We gave them <laughs> some bread. So, it, yeah, very interesting. But that's where he kind of hid out. He hid out in the areas where... It wasn't very powerful people. It was kind of the, mm-hmm. the rabble-rousers of society, just so he could hide. So since the men in his family were dead, he did inherit the family wealth, which was around 300 talents, estimated to be around $9 million today. If, if all the talents are silver, because talents at the time was a unit of weight measurement, mm-hmm. it's just like your weight in silver. Most of the time it was silver. Sometimes it was gold. If it was silver, $9 million. Not a bad... Not a bad thing to just inherit. Good inheritance. Sucks that the parents, or excuse me, that his dad and brothers are dead, but $9 million is pretty They sick. never mention his mom in any of them. I was about to say, I don't think they mention the mom. They really, in my research, didn't mention the mom, really don't mention the wife either. Like, I know that you had the source, like, I never found it. <laughs> yeah, he marries, her, name's Tur- her name was Tertula, and then he also marries some other woman who his name is etched on her tomb now. Oh. I don't know when she comes into the story. I couldn't find it anywhere. <laughs> so she just shows up somewhere, apparently. But as Marius installed himself as consul with his second-in-command named Cinna, who Marius was the man who killed everybody in Rome, he installed himself as consul with his second-in-command named Cinna, and then Crassus organized a few of his closest friends and around 10 of his slaves and left his wife and child back in Rome, and he fled to Spain because he knew his father still had some supporters in Spain. 
While he was in exile, a lot happened, but most of it was hundreds or thousands of miles away from where he was at the time. In Rome, Marius died and left the official position to Cinna, who instituted even more populist reforms than his former commander did. He canceled 75% of debts, set fixed exchange rates, and returned hoarded wealth into popular circulation. Okay. Lots of good stuff. Especially for this time where, like, if you think that right now the United States has a disproportionate amount of wealth, like Rome, three people had the wealth. Exactly. There was just a bunch of gold and silver sitting somewhere that he saw, and he's like, why is this not in circulation? Right. This could help us a lot. Right, right. So, I, But the canceling of all debts, too. Let's uh, write that down, uh, Joey B. Might if be we, a good, good if we move. Could, if we could just take, learn, learn from the history, learn but from the past. You got to remember, too, that this is a, the basis for this was a social war. It was mm. basically the people versus the Senate and like the powerful people. Right. So it, this is the populist side taking advantage of their time and power. At the same time, another young man named Julius Caesar married Cinna's daughter. And then he almost got assassinated by Cinna because Cinna apparently didn't like that. Julius Caesar was in exile at the time, somehow got right. Somehow got to Cinna's daughter while he was in power and married her. So I don't know how that happened. He just it's a footnote in the book, but what a crazy footnote. And then Julius Caesar almost died. You know, the inventor of the salad and the place in Vegas? Almost didn't exist. He almost dies a couple times. He like well, he gets, gets kidnapped by, a by pirate. pirates, yeah. Yeah. and then yeah. he does not show mercy to them. Oh no, he was very upset when yes. he uh, got his payback for that. But aside from Julius Caesar, further east, a king of a land known as Parthia, whose name was Mithridates II, died and l- kind of left his entire kingdom with a bunch of internal strife, leaving it vulnerable, which would later come to influence Crassus at the end of his life. And lastly, Sulla, who was the other participant in the Civil War, was expanding the Roman influence into modern-day Turkey, fighting against their king, whose name was Mithradates VI. I gotta say, I do love these names a lot. Yeah, but it's very frustrating, because the guy in Parthia is named Mithridates with an I, and then the guy in Pontus is named Mithradates with an A. (laughs) (laughs) And if you're curious, just with Parthia in general, we're in terms of where it was, basically from Asia Minor, so your Turkey, all the way through to even parts of, uh, well, it reaches the Arabian Sea to the most east part of it. So I would compare it to like the old Persian Empire. Yeah. Just for like, context with like, what is Parthia? Because before doing this research, I really had no idea. Yeah, it's a lot of like the Middle East, like Iraq, Iran, yeah. those areas. And then like Southern Turkey and Syria is where Pontus, that's where that kind mm-hmm. of is. So a little more west. I ran. (laughs) Not now, Evan. (laughs) While all of that was happening far away, Crassus was living in a cave. He was getting food and, quote, what the book quoted as, comely slave girls in search of a master. Oh, God. End quote. In in search of? All right. Yeah. (laughs) Sure. So he was getting prostitutes while living in a cave. (laughs) Ew. Very interesting life to live. You know what? I can't imagine cave prostitutes being being something that's, that's the name that's, of the episode right sick. there yeah. <laughs> cave prostitutes yeah. marcus licinius crassus and then as he was living in a cave crassus got news that cinna had died back in rome ambition then returned to crassus who immediately began to raise an army in spain so he could meet up with sulla and return to rome under his power 
threats and force in local towns raised funds to build a small army into a bigger force, which he then carried on to Africa, where it grew even more. After a stop in Greece, Crassus officially met up with Sulla not as an exile, but as a general. Upon their return to Rome, Sulla took control as dictator and sent Crassus and his ragtag Spanish legion to subdue eastern tribes who turned against Rome in the social wars. So he gets back to Rome and almost immediately sent out on campaigns. No. <laughs> <laughs> Which it's, it's like right next to Rome. It's not very far. Right. But it's a lot of the people that were mad at Publius because he was the one that banned magicians. And these people practiced a lot of magic in this area. Mm. So they were pretty mad about it <laughs> what are we supposed to do with all these rabbits <laughs> we have excess of rabbits we and have, hats yeah so many top hats <laughs> oh my god i really would love to see like what a magic i'm assuming it's like magic worship in in real life but in my mind i'm just picturing a magic show <laughs> exactly in rome i really want that to be the case yeah i know it is a guy with coattails <laughs> yeah like, i would love to see that it would i would love to see that fun. as long as there's no one like burning at the stake oh there would be there, there that would be was. okay can you imagine a guy with the top hat and coattails burning people at the stake it's less fun now and then pulling a rabbit up <laughs> and then pulling, a, oh my God. pulling so, a rabbit out of the ashes yeah exactly so alongside Crassus on his campaign to subdue this tribe would be another young general who's a man named Pompey. The two chased the enemy king away, but Crassus took control of enemy locations on his own instead of staying with Pompey and was accused pretty quickly of looting these areas for himself instead of sharing it with the Republic, which was an accusation he would face quite a few times throughout his life. Afterwards, Sulla, Crassus, and Pompey swept through the rest of the Italian states, fighting and subduing the rest of Marius's allies. And at the final battle at Colleen Gate, Sulla and his young generals secured a huge victory. I believe they took down about 50,000 people. And this finally allowed Crassus to return to Rome as a winner instead of an exile. That a boy, he's, he's coming back. back. He's back. And this was also the beginning of the legacy that Crassus would truly leave, which was his exorbitant wealth. After Sulla took control in Rome, he took the former Marian assets as proscriptions, which were basically, you sell these properties to these dead Marian supporters as auction items for mm -hmm. like pennies on the dollar, pretty right. much. Crassus bought a lot of these and built the basis of his real estate empire. He sold some of them to his allies, ensuring loyalty and favors from other powerful people whenever he would need them. And while he was securing his financial gains, Pompey was honored with a triumph through Rome for his part in the fighting, which is the first of many things where Crassus is going to be very angry at Pompey. Right. It's very interesting that this man has just, an, like you mentioned, an exorbitant amount of wealth, real estate, kind of influence. But all he wants is a triumph. Like he wants it so bad. I, like I said, it's just a a parade. But everyone has to have one, seemingly, to mm -hmm. really have a a standing in Rome. It's really weird. Once we hit a certain amount of subscribers, we are absolutely having a parade, a triumph. <laughs> we are absolutely having a triumph. Yes. I would totally. We have to dress like Roman generals, though. Yes, <laughs> that'd be sick, honestly. But at this time too, Sulla, as he marches back into Rome, he's now a dictator mm -hmm. this is the first like one of the first times that rome has a sole dictator i mean marius did it then Cinna did it now Sulla is doing it but this is setting the precedent for the roman empire pretty much and this is why things start to collapse very quickly in rome during crassus's lifetime 
So Crassus's business practices were dubious, to say the least, because the names of buyers for all of the proscriptions that he was buying up were public. So if Sulla wanted to see who was buying all the property in Rome, he could. However, it wasn't the auctions that almost got Crassus in trouble. Around the same time, Crassus was accused of seducing a Vestal virgin named Licinia, who was also his cousin, because he wanted to control her estate. Ooh. (laughs) Yeah, so the Vestal virgins, if you don't know, are just a a republic, or during the Roman Republic, there's kind of a religious sect of virgins who, if they break their vows, it's kind of a huge deal. They're kind of a big... It's almost magic, like like mm-hmm. very prominent factor in Roman society for like fa- future favors with gods and stuff like that. A lot of religions throughout our lifetime have had quite a special appreciation for virgins. It's like very- ranging from all across the world, different different religions. Exactly. Yeah. So it's very interesting that not even Rome. Or, excuse me, even Rome also, <laughs> yeah. also had a special... Not even Rome. <laughs> right, right. Well, I mean, you also found, or you find this typically in, like, you're allowed to work in the temple, but you have to be, or you have to abstain from sex. Exactly. And that carries on into Christianity, Greek mythology even. So it's very common practice, but still very funny that her cousin was then like, yeah, hey girl. <laughs> He was acquitted, so I don't right, know. Right, 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 right. Who knows if he actually did try and seduce her? He he gets acquitted of a lot of stuff just because he's really rich. So he maybe he did try and seduce her, but he yeah. did indeed acquire the estate. So oh, there we go. Got it somehow. After that, Crassus then became a senator, continuing his tour of acquiring allies. He organized his large number of slaves into a well-trained, skilled laborer union, I guess you could call it, and then he used these slaves to great advantage. Because one of the biggest issues in Rome, aside from war, was fire. Mm-hmm. When Crassus was only four in 111 BC, a huge fire ripped through Rome that wouldn't be outdone until Rome burned under Nero's rule. So this is a huge fire. Burned a lot of Rome down. But Crassus viewed these fires as financial opportunity. <laughs> With his well-trained slaves, he had his own firefighters. This meant that Crassus could buy neighboring structures in an area where a fire was raging for a rock-bottom price then control the fire with his slaves, and then sell the structures back for huge profits afterwards. So he's taking advantage of people whose houses are on fire, pretty much. Who literally have no other option. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Despite how many enemies this made him, he made just as many friends by handing out low-risk loans to other people. In addition to acquiring more prescriptions and even some more silver mines in Rome, Crassus became insanely wealthy. (laughs) According to Plutarch, at the height of Crassus's wealth, he had around 7,100 talents. And if those were all silver and not gold, that would be the equivalent to a modern-day $200 million. And Evan and I kind of had a conversation before we started recording that some of that probably was gold, so mm-hmm. I would put his value probably closer to a billion dollars, if anything. But Right, I think that's a very fair estimate. I mean, we also, part of that conversation was like, what if it was all gold and then it was just... What did we end up saying? Like it was almost fifteen billion, like fifteen billion dollars of gold. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, we're most likely looking at a mix of both, but primarily silver because he did again own all those mines. Yeah, he owned some in Rome and Spain. So, so he has the I can do whatever I want money. Very much so. 
But despite how much wealth he had, Crassus was never said to be a rude or pompous man with it. He was said to be regularly generous with the commoners and was never opposed to shaking hands with anybody and addressing them in a friendly manner. He was said to be very well-spoken and make, made sure to call everyone he met by name. So even the lower people in society in Rome, he was very nice to them. So there's that to be said, I guess. Yeah, he did treat everyone a lot better than, I guess, a rich person perceives that they have to, if that makes sense. Um, the reason why we keep on calling him a bastard, though, still a confirmed owner of people. Oh, yeah, and he's... <laughs> a we, lot of people. We just discussed how he's taking advantage of the lowest rung of society by purchasing their houses and then making money on it. and the, Or making them fight fires. This is the equivalent <laughs> of all these corporations buying houses for yeah. exorbitant prices and then airbnb them and let, not letting people buy them. Right. So, yeah, kind of similar to that. I kind of forgot that that's going on. Oh, yeah. California's cracking down on it, I think, but I don't think anywhere else is, so... That's good, because that just makes it impossible to i won't diverge too much I don't wanna, yeah. but also despite his wealth crassus knew that it wasn't enough to just be rich to climb up in roman society he knew that he either needed political influence or military might to kind of combine with his riches both of which would kind of come in quick succession for him Crassus used his educated abilities as an orator to move up the political ladder, and it was said that he changed his views quite often to fit his interests, so he, he really knew his way around a political venue, mm -hmm. to say the least. Eventually, he was in the good graces with most of the upper echelons of politics, which would benefit him greatly in the mid-70s BC, when Sulla stepped down as dictator and shortly thereafter died. This left Pompey, Crassus, and soon, soon, coming soon, to Julius Caesar. <laughs> <laughs> to a theater near you. But yeah, left the three of them, at first the two of them, and then once Caesar comes in, it left the three of them to try and vie for power. And like I said, there wasn't really any precedent for having a sole ruler in Rome at this time, so having two people in power was very common. So it's mm -hmm. not like they were fighting head-to-head -head very often to have that sole power. Right. Like, the armies weren't clashing at this point. No. But before they could figure out who would be the new quote-unquote first man in Rome, Pompey and Crassus had to deal with something else. A plucky slave named Spartacus. Ever heard of him? He had escaped, due to some ineptitude from two of Pompey's allies. And he was leading an army of rebels through areas south of Rome. This is one of my favorite historical figures, I think, by far. Spartacus was very cool. He's crazy, just escaping gladiatorial fights and then raising an army. Yeah, raising an entire army. And defeating legions. Yeah, yeah. Crazy. Since Pompey himself, who is now called Pompey the Great, was away, Crassus had to play. This is the perfect opportunity for him, though, since many of the Senate were still wary of a young upstart like him coming in to take control of their sphere of influence. Crassus organized a large legion of troops, bought their tunics and gear, and then led them out. So he's spending a lot of private money at this point to organize this army. And that's kind of what it was like in the Republic. Mm -hmm. There wasn't really a public fund for him to pull from. It was just him. The two consuls who had let Spartacus escape then returned to Rome, <laughs> very sneakily entered back into Rome, saying, <laughs> we didn't do anything wrong. And they were put under the command of one of Crassus's junior officers. They quickly got defeated, and then Spartacus' army moved on, but Crassus ordered one in ten men who attempted to flee the battle be clubbed to death by their fellow soldiers, yeah. showing how serious Crassus was about ending the slave rebellion. That was also a very common practice for the legions. Like, if a commander 
felt that there was like some disdain towards their commanders, like the troops had disdain towards their commanders, or if there was any plans of mutiny, they would order the same exact thing where groups of 10 would be formed and then they had to kill one of them. Yeah. They would and draw it could lots. be completely right. Like draw lots, like completely random. Yeah. And it could all be just because the commander was, I mean, it could be baseless accusations. A little peeved. <laughs> right, yeah. But in this case, it was just because he was disappointed that they had fled. I mean, right, right, right. There was only 500 people in this one, so it was, I mean, still 50 people died. <laughs> but <Bro. laughs> clubbed still, to death by their own men. Still, that's 10% of your fighting force yeah. gone. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it was a very brutal response to them losing this battle. Mm. But it showed his he was willing to do anything to defeat Spartacus. After Spartacus had won a few more battles and retreated to the north, Crassus was right on his ass. The Roman generals set up natural barriers like ditches and also paid off all of the Mediterranean pirates to refuse to help Spartacus escape. After a last effort to defeat Crassus, Spartacus was finally defeated, and the war that should have never been a war was finally over. The 6,000 survivors of Spartacus's men were taken care of in exacting brutality from Crassus. Every 30 yards as the line of men marched, Crassus ordered that whoever was last in line was to be hoisted up onto a cross and crucified, ensuring that the men in, front of the, in the front of the line would have no knowledge of what was happening until it was their turn. Thus, he had lined the busiest road in Italy with 6,000 reminders of what would happen if anyone had similar ideas. Dude, Rome is a crazy state to be in. <laughs> that's 6,000 people every 30 yards. Like, that is, that's crazy. Well, and, and they were up there for probably days. Yeah, they were up until they decomposed enough to fall off, and then the wood was burned by all the peasants. So, yeah. Gross. But <laughs> Gross. I'm also, very happy to be born when I was. It's also just so devious to not yeah. have the other people in front of them know what's happening. Like, you just have your men take one guy off the back of the line as you're still marching. So, no, like, if, if you're not letting them turn around, mm -hmm. they're not going to see it. They're not, they're going to hear something. <laughs> but <laughs> they, they just keep on hearing like hammers and screams. Yeah, like, screams. <laughs> what was that? Something happening back there. After this, Pompey took care of the rest of the rebellion on his way back from Spain, getting another triumph in Rome, while Crassus got nothing of the sort. Yeah, Pompey completely, completely steals all the credit this, for Crassus's deeds. This is why Crassus kind of hates Pompey. Oh, big time. And I mean, it was like Pompey did just win a bunch of fights in Spain, right. so he kind of deserved it, but... And Crassus knew going into this slave rebellion that defeating a bunch of slaves was, there wasn't going to be any honor in it, mm -hmm. but he was just mad that Pompey took the last of it out and he was like, I did it. Yeah. Took full credit. And he just kind of, he third partied it to mm -hmm. be quite frankly. Well, and there was a lot of people mad that he lined the road with 6,000 people on crosses too. So I can imagine why the general public was upset about that. <laughs> How am I going to get there now? Right. <laughs> After their return, Crassus and Pompey both ran to be elected for the position of consul in Rome, and since there was always two consuls, they both had a chance to win despite being wary rivals of each other. Since the, there were two large armies outside of Rome, one controlled by Crassus and the other by Pompey, nobody really argued that they should be elected. <laughs> right, when you have, like you mentioned, huge armies right outside the castle just waiting to fight, you kind of have to elect the certain people. <laughs> yeah, I don't think anyone's going to argue with you. No. 
So the both, general public was like, fine, can I have some bread now? Can, like, yeah, can you share some of the money? Right. <laughs> you guys are having parades. I just want some, I want bread. <laughs> the parade budget was just <laughs> through the like, roof. unbelievably high. So both of them were awarded the consulship and went to work. Strangely, they both agreed that the people had been downtrodden for too long and they went to put a more populist agenda into place. Pompey, for his part, headed the public face of the matter while Crassus disbanded his army and moved into the senatorial aspect of things. The two men eventually worked as uneasy companions and moved back into the positions that they had before. Pompey moved east into Pontus and set meetings with an empire I mentioned way earlier called Parthia. Parthia sat on the eastern side of the natural border of the Euphrates River into modern-day Iraq, Iran, kind of that area we talked about earlier. And on his way, he had looted and plundered towns that weren't loyal to Roman rule. But this left Crassus alone in Rome. And instead of attempting to undermine his fellow consul, Crassus feared that Pompey was going to return from his exploits in the east and follow the example that Sulla had set by killing his rival to power. Always a good move. Because Crassus had just disbanded his army, he knew he wasn't really a military guy. He knew he was the guy that was going to talk to people. He was the guy with the money. Mm-hmm. So he was very scared that Pompey was just going <laughs> to come back and be like, eh, I don't know. <laughs> this is mine now. <laughs> I yeah. see what you've done here. Love the work. This is mine. Crassus left Rome under this fear for Asia for a time, setting up Caesar in the position of high priest in Rome before he left. So this is really where Crassus kind of starts to sponsor Caesar seriously. However, Crassus didn't stay in Asia long. He returned back to Rome to anxiously await Pompey's return. And to everyone's relief, and perhaps some people's disappointment, it wasn't very exciting when he got back. He returned with all of his spoils of war, gave a modest speech to the Senate, and moved back into his position as consul and set his sights on becoming the new quote-unquote first man in Rome so that he could rest for a little while. (laughs) Crassus attempted to further his position by showing Pompey his power and wealth. He backed a man named Claudius in court and paid for his acquittal for cross-dressing to invade a women's festival at the home of the Vestal Virgins. It always comes back to the Vestal Virgins. (laughs) But it was said that he just did not look like a woman at all. (laughs) But he went to this festival that was organized by Caesar's mom and wife. And it was supposed to be like this... Caesar's mom, comma, wife. (laughs) No, two separate people. Two separate folks. (laughs) You have to clarify that. (laughs) But this guy just tried to cross-dress to go in and see all these sacred rites that were happening, which I don't even know what that means. (laughs) Like, what were they doing? But yeah, then Krasik just paid for his support in court. I was about to say, you have the money, my man. I think you can, again, do whatever you want. But all of this religious controversy overshadowed Pompey's return, so it made him very angry. (laughs) But it was only for a short time, because his triumph in Rome took place shortly after his return from Parthia, showcasing the immense spoils of war he brought back with him, which included a 12-foot-tall solid gold statue of Pontus's former king. So that's probably what? Twelve million dollar statue. You have to oh, think th- even more than that. That's got to be yeah, oh, solid man. gold. Solid twelve gold, feet tall. Yeah. You got to think like three feet wide on either side. Yeah, <sighs> heavy as hell. That's 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 a lot of money. At least ten dollars could buy you McChicken. Yes, Pompey now proved that he could keep up with Crassus where money was concerned. So it's kind of a big change, changing point between Crassus and Pompey. But Pompey now also realized, I don't want to fight all the time. So they're kind of on equal playing fields here. 
Instead, Crassus turned back to supporting Caesar again and creating an ally through him who he and Pompey, in addition, would back for election to consul in 59 BC. And this is kind of the time when it created a, an open secret that Pompey, Crassus, and Caesar were all three in charge together, creating what would come to be known as the First Triumvirate. But it didn't take long after Caesar's election for this alliance to become very uncertain. (laughs) Yeah. Caesar was sent off to Gaul on a campaign, which is kind of Germanic areas and then sometimes into Britain, depending on how far you go. And he quickly gained huge success from that, using Crassus's legions and money. (laughs) This made not only Crassus nervous, but Pompey as well. Upon a Gallic governor's death, Caesar then rejected Crassus's man to put in charge and instead put himself in that position. Yeah, very bold move to do, considering he was going against the man that was providing all of his funds. Sponsoring him. Yeah, right, Giving right. him the men. And his Crassus's son is now in Caesar's forces. Right. So yeah. he's got a very close man to, if he wanted to take Caesar out, he could have. But to counter this power, Crassus and Pompey began to push their bids for another consulship. The way the consulship worked is you were just you were in that position for a year, and that was a yearly election. Ooh, we we should maybe think about that for how our government goes. I no, I can't imagine. I love the idea, but I'm my, not, yeah, I'm not voting that much. I my guess. mind immediately just goes to year like nonstop political campaigns on everything, yeah. no, like commercials yeah <laughs> like, that would be see so- that part sucks but hey change over these people sometimes huh? you're gonna, yeah right <laughs> you're gonna interfere on my tv and youtube watching schedule sir <laughs> you're right you're right forget it never mind <laughs> yeah but no let's uh put age limits on who can be in office but anyway back to uh, back, <laughs> but it's very funny that like everyone was scared of crassus because he was young <laughs> right in the senate right so it's oh weird that doesn't happen anymore. yeah this up-and-comer and what at this point he's well, like it would, even when he's 30s, like, right. everyone was scared. <laughs> right, right. So as they pushed their bids for consulship, Crassus then turns, turned the tides by meeting with Caesar in private and telling him that Pompey was threatening him. <laughs> Caesar then organized a meeting between the three of them where the Senate realized that Caesar had too many risks attached to him, thus lending support for Crassus and Pompey to eventually win the election for consulship again in 56 BC, which sent Caesar back to Gaul Pompey gained governorship in Spain, and Crassus got governorship in Syria, which was the richest area of the, the empire, empire, quote-unquote, of Rome. During this time, Crassus' son Publius was also making a name for himself as an outstanding military commander. He returned to Rome for his father's re-election, married an heiress who was a descendant from Scipio Africanus, who had defeated Hannibal, and set his sights on becoming as historic as Alexander the Great by joining his father on his expedition east. Honestly, pretty good lineage. <laughs> like Big goals. Yeah. <laughs> like, coming back and being like, I'm going to be Alexander the Great. Also, I'm going to marry this chick. Also, you, <laughs> you <laughs> lady. Your, your great-great-grandfather right. saved Rome. <laughs> right. <laughs> Caesar sent support politically to Crassus's campaign east as well, as did Pompey who even sent some troops in a show of support. But in reality, nobody really knew why Crassus was going on this campaign in the first place. According to Plutarch, Crassus was said to have relayed in private that he was going to continue into India after he defeated Parthia, making Pompey's expeditions look like child's play. So it seems that his intention was to prove that he was the true quote-unquote first man in Rome. Yeah, it was very spite-driven, I would say. 
Well, of course, he does want to build his own name, but like you mentioned, a lot of it was to one-up Pompey, who had the same post, if I'm not mistaken, like a few years beforehand. They're both consuls. Right, right. So, like, he definitely, like we mentioned before, one of the richest men just still doesn't have the real military achievements yet as the other two members of the triumvirate. Right. And that's really all he cares about is getting that triumph. Well, and he kind of, there's a lot of competing ideas on why he maybe did this other than that. Just mm-hmm. Maybe he just wanted to get out of Rome. He didn't really like being in Rome, honestly. Mm-hmm. He liked going back to Spain and stuff. And maybe he was just ready to like be done. And he's just like, one last hurrah. Right. Also, maybe he just wanted to get more money, like we mentioned. Yeah, that's another big one. <laughs> right. Like This is the most profitable area in the empire. Parthia, the Parthia had a ton of money as well. They were super lucrative empire. So if they conquer, if he conquers that. But in Rome, there was a good amount of pushback against this decision, leaving Crassus, who is normally the one pulling the strings, to have his strings held in Pompey's hand, because it would be up to him to make sure that Crassus got continued support. Crassus' initial movements through the east were successful. Over 100,000 people in areas of Macedonia he passed through paid him tributes. And then after Macedonia, he moved into Syria and through the final parts of the borders that Pompey had set up on his campaigns at the beginning of the decade. When he arrived at a place known as Galatia, he met a, named na- um, he met a man named Diotarus, who was known as the Divine Bull of Galatia who had been set up as king by Pompey in an unpredictably violent society, and he kind of... Pompey had pretty much secured this guy's safety, Mm -hmm. so he was very grateful to the Romans, honestly. Crassus met him as the divine bull was supervising a construction of a new city, commenting that the king was rather old to be leading such a project. In response, Diotorus stated, quote, You yourself are not starting against the Parthians very early in the morning. End quote. Love that. And he was right, because Crassus was over 60 at this point and hadn't campaigned in nearly two decades. Right. A 60-year-old trying to leave, or excuse me, a 60-year-old trying to lead a military campaign is not something you see very often for this time period. Right. And not having done it consistently for 20 years. For 20 years, yeah. yeah. You're going to be a little rusty. But Crassus was as he had always been. He was exacting and calculating. He knew that this march east was already on shaky ground with support back home uncertain at best. Nothing else could be out of order. He made life in his ranks very routine, everything as regimented and clear-cut as possible. Trumpet blasts in camp told each man when to pack up, when to load gear into wagons, and when to march in their assigned orders. Campsites were chosen ahead of time by scouts and marked ahead of time to separate the Romans from whoever was nearby. The boundaries would then be dug all around into a small ditch, which was a meter deep and a meter across, just as an extra measure of separation. And a platform would be stood outside of Crassus' tent to watch birds for auguries, which were omens of future events. That is one of the funnier things I think I've ever heard. Like, also, I, need, I need a bird platform. <laughs> it was also to give speeches if need be, but the bird part's fun. Let's lean more into the bird part. <laughs> I think that's what it was used probably more often, so... Yeah. But Crassus and his 35,000 men were trained and ready. While he waited for his son Publius to join them with his Gallic cavalry, Crassus made the decision to face the enemy head-on in battle instead of in negotiations, as he had usually done. By 54 BC, Crassus had finally crossed the Euphrates into Parthia and found the local Parthian army pretty quickly. 
He won a very one-sided victory, sending one of the leaders back to the Parthian king with wounds as a clear message of what Crassus' intent was. Some of the local Greek cities vowed their allegiances to Crassus, but one, a city called Xenodotium, massacred a hundred of the Roman soldiers who were sent there to secure their surrender. Crassus then proceeded to sack the town one house at a time and took all of the inhabitants as slaves. Jeez. One how this man loves doing things so individually, like one slave gets pulled from the back of the line to yeah. get put on cross. One house gets burned and the entire inhabitants taken as slaves. As I said, very exacting and very calculating. Yeah. But this event turned the tides in Crassus's favor because it showed his men what it t- what types of spoils they could expect to take home from victory in battle. But it's also where Crassus made his first mistake. After this, instead of pressing the attack forward, he turned his men back across the Euphrates back into Syria to await winter and await his son. In the minds of Crassus's advisors, the victories that they had in Parthia were way too easy, and they cautioned their leader to continue training his troops and continue to work on endurance and tactics in this foreign landscape while they waited. But instead of listening to his men, Crassus counted his money and welcomed the arrival of his son, who himself had just been victorious in his endeavors. But this gave Parthians time to prepare. In the downtime, King Erodus II of Parthia even sent an ambassador to the Roman camp to possibly negotiate with Crassus. Word from the king said that if Crassus was truly there on Roman orders, then the war would continue. But if he was just there as a private adventurer, the Parthians would allow him to take what he had already gained and go back to Rome without consequence. So he had an ultimatum. He could have just left. He could have just left with money. He yeah, just left with more slaves to do, I guess, Roman things Slave with. Things. Yeah, <laughs> but so, yeah, he. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I was gonna say, yeah, he. Well, we'll get into it, but he does not love this offer of of truce, if you will. Yeah. In response, Crassus said that he would give his answer when he marched into the Parthian royal city. The Parthian advance. The Parthian ambassador then replied by holding out the palm of his hand and saying, "Quote." Hair will grow here, Crassus, before you see Seleucia, end quote. I love old-time burns like this. Like, hair will grow out of my palm before you have military victory. Exactly. Or the king that you mentioned before. Like, you're also not a spring chicken. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, there is one, one thing I didn't put in my notes is there's another bad omen on their trip because they were entering into a, a sacred temple or something, mm. and Publius was leading into the temple, and he tripped. And then as he tripped... Crassus then tripped over his son and <laughs> fell over him. So everyone's like, that's not good. <laughs> <laughs> so with this statement, the ambassador's intent, intent was to say that it was an impossibility for Crassus to get into the city. It's pretty clear cut. But apparently in Crassus's religion, a man with hair on his palms was a metaphor for a masturbator. So oh. he thought that the message meant that the king of Parthia, King Erodus II, would have to become the lowest man in his kingdom before he would allow Crassus in, which would never happen. So either way, the message was the same, <laughs> just interpreted very differently. All right. Yeah, <laughs> I guess the either or works yeah. as an insult. If he's a masturbator, then I guess. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Crassus also refused aid from the Armenians, who were just north of Parthia, who he heard themselves were fighting with the Parthians. So Mm -hmm. he got an offer for support. He just didn't take it. In his waiting, Crassus also heard rumors of the heavily armed cataphracts of the Parthians, man and horse coated in heavy armor. 
He heard talk of missiles being fired from afar, striking with enough force to pierce armor. But Crassus believed that these were tall tales. In his efforts to keep the men's morale high, he didn't mention it. He also didn't mention the bad omens from his priests, who had not seen good fortunes for their commanders and their auguries. And against everyone's judgment but his own and his son's, Crassus and Publius crossed the Euphrates again in the spring of 53 BC. As they marched, the terrain slowly changed from grass to sand, and Crassus was indecisive on what to do. Should he be cautious, as his advisors had been saying? Or should he listen to his son, who was eager to press the issue? Well, ultimately, his decision was made for him when his local scouts went missing one night. He sent some more, but less and less kept returning back to camp. Crassus then realized he had to organize, so he organized his forces into fighting formations and became ready to face the enemy. But what he saw was not what he was expecting. <laughs> On the road to Kara, Crassus saw a swirling force of horses and the sound of distant drums. The horsemen were wearing animal skins, and as they charged, they threw off their disguises to reveal that they were the fabled cataphracts hiding their heavy armor. The charge didn't phase the tight formations of the Romans, but soon the compound bows and heavy arrows of the Parthians began to do damage. Crassus figured he could wait out the arrows until they ran out, and then he would advance his army to win the day. Until they ran out, as if they would bring, like, that's the thing that they would skimp on for the battle. Right. (laughs) This was a huge part of, like, the Parthian army's entire MO. Like, they were very horse-driven, they were nomadic people, but they used horses quite a bit in their military tactics. And it's, uh, if you remember, like, our Attila the Hun episode, kind of like that same thing, like horse archers. Right. Very effective. But it, they had never fought the Parthians before. Mm-hmm. They had only negotiated with them, so yeah. they didn't know what they were expecting. And then he didn't listen to the rumors that they he had been hearing. They found out. <laughs> yeah, so he fucked around and he found he out. He found out. <laughs> the Parthians didn't run out of arrows. The <laughs> 9,000 mounted bowmen made constant retreats to the back line of the army where they had camels waiting with arrows to restock the archers. The relentless attacks forced the Roman forces to be stationary. Crassus, he knew he needed a break from the reign of arrows, so he sent his son and his 1,000 cavalry to force the archers back. And at first, it looked like it worked. But in no time, the mounted archers of the Parthians turned on their horses and fired backwards on Publius and his men. Publius and his men were quickly pushed back, separated from the main forces, with Publius himself taking an arrow through his hand. At this point, he knew he couldn't fight, and intent on not being paraded through the Parthian camp as a trophy, Publius had one of his men closest to him drive a sword through his side. Many of the other men followed his lead, with some killing themselves, with others killing themselves with each other in a more dignified death. Crassus then broke his lines to go find his son, only to see a cataphract holding Publius's head on the end of his spear, the same sight Crassus had seen of his father when he was a boy. Yeah, that is tough. Not a good time for him. <laughs> Very, gosh, history just repeats itself in the funniest, not funniest, but like craziest <laughs> So <ways>. funny. <laughs> so, LOL. <laughs> Heads on spears. Don't dude. you love it? Yeah. <laughs> it was a personal tragedy, but Crassus knew that he had to try and get his men back alive. He had hopes of retreat, but the losses continued throughout the day. And by the end of the day, word came to the Roman camp that Crassus had one day to mourn his son, after that, he could either be taken to King Erodus to surrender, or he could be carried there as a dead man. 
Knowing he was defeated, Crassus used the cover of night to gather the most able-bodied men and attempt to retreat. He took an indirect route rather than a normal route to further confuse his enemies, heading to the city of Kare. I don't know if I'm saying that right. It's C-A-R-R-H-A-E, so we're going with Kare. Sure. The Parthians, under direction from their young leader, Seranus, didn't know where he went. <laughs> <laughs> hey, where'd he go? He's gone. <laughs> so in an attempt to find the Romans, Seranus sent a man to Kare to offer peace terms. And instead of ignoring this man, the Romans made the mistake of accepting the peace terms. Mm. This feint of a ceasefire gave Serenus the Roman army's location. <laughs> On his way to Carre, Serenus slaughtered the, in- the injured Romans that were left behind and forced Crassus and his men to split into further groups to attempt multiple retreats during the night. Crassus and his men took the worst route, <laughs> ending up in the swamps and marshes, but they at least had higher ground. And Serenus, not wanting to push into the swamps, offered another truce from Erodes himself. This time, Crassus accepted. He met with Serenus on a desert plain where he was offered a horse. When the Parthians slapped the horse to send it back to the Parthian camp, Crassus' men attempted to grab the reins and were killed. Marcus Licinius Crassus was the last to die in what was an essentially a squabble over a horse. <laughs> The richest man in all of the Roman Empire, Roman Republic. Thank you. Soon to be Empire. <laughs> died over a horse fight. Pretty much. Because his men just grabbed the Because the men, yeah. yeah. <laughs> just like, you could just let it happen. Yeah, just take turns on the horse. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Serenus then ordered that Crassus's hands and head be severed and sent back to Herodes. Other stories state that before his head was cut off, his mouth was filled with molten gold as a testament to his greed in life. That story continues that once Serenus brought his opponent's head back to Seleucia, it was used as a prop in a play the king was watching. The ambassador who had made the comment about hair growing on his palms was happy to report that his palms still had no hair. Look at that. Not a masturbator, <laughs> yeah, apparently. Yeah, right. A prisoner who looked similar to Crassus was dressed as a woman and paraded through the city of Seleucia, which was one last indignity to the end of Crassus's life. Marcus Licinius Crassus' name was carved into the funeral tower of his wife, along the same road that Crassus had crucified 6,000 prisoners on 20-something years before. Oof. 6,000. Yeah. 6,001 now, wow. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he's not there. Right, 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 right. Apparently, no. his name could still be seen on this tower carved in 2,000 years later. So That is very cool. And then, as we mentioned, after his death, the Roman Republic pretty quickly collapsed. Mm-hmm. There was a chain of, events, chain of events that led to the Republic collapsing, not least of which was Julius Caesar taking sole dictatorship for two years and then being assassinated by his men. Right. And then... Not 15 years later, the Republic was over, Empire was in. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) and the Empire's here. We're back. So yeah, uh, Crassus, very important in life and very important in death. (laughs) Yeah, and his name also like synonymous with greed and like kind of overstepping ambition as well. Uh, Very interesting man. Yeah, uh, Plutarch writes pretty harshly about him in his Mm. Parallel Lives series that he wrote when he was still alive. Yeah, he he does not look favorably upon how greedy Publius or not how greedy Marcus Licinius Crassus was. Ah, uh, yeah. So yeah, 
very interesting man. Very important man that we don't talk about a lot. Not at all. Yeah, the richest man of the most famous empire, republic, dictatorship at times. <laughs> civilization. People that, people that ruled other people. <laughs> right, right, right. But yeah, extremely interesting topic and extremely interesting episode. If you want to continue the conversation with us, you can go to any of our social medias first on Twitter at gems underscore history. You can follow Jacob at Jacob from Wisco, myself at whatevskis. You can also find us on Instagram, Patreon, Facebook, TikTok, and YouTube at Gems of History Podcast. Feel free to follow us on any of those. The Patreon currently is at $5 a month. And with that, you get a sticker as well as the opportunity to vote for monthly listener-selected episodes, and you get access to episodes early. So And ad-free. And ad-free. Yeah. Go subscribe. Do it up. Go to patreon.com slash Gems of History Podcast or download the app. Just search for us on there. You can sign up that way. But yeah, we appreciate all the people that support us so far. Uh, really does mean a lot to us. Mm-hmm. So we will be back next week with something. Something or the other. It'll be a topic. You're going to hear about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Evan, since you started the episode, do you want to take us out? From, from my family to your family. Hey. Stay polished. <laughs> <laughs>